Welcome once again to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I'm pleased to welcome Stephen Karangisi, my friend uh, and former CEO of the African Legal Support Facility of the African Development Bank, which he established and ran since 2011. Stephen is retired now and lives in his home country of uh, Uganda. Stephen consults, but also has dealt into uh, commercial agriculture. Stephen, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's lovely to speak with you. Thank you very much, Sheila. Lovely to speak to you too and join you on this podcast. Right. I, I know that uh, being a, a trained lawyer, I, I wanted to speak with you about uh, governance, but also looking at it through, uh, in part, the uh, legal lens. Now, because governance is both an ethical and a legal matter, could you just tell us, in what way is governance uh, a legal matter? No, thank you, uh, Sheila. Yeah. Governance is um, a legal matter, I would say, for probably two main reasons. Firstly, the best way for governance principles to be clear to all the stakeholders, because when you're talking of a mining industry, extract all the extractive industry, you're talking about multiple stakeholders. It is important that those principles are written. They can be written either in law, the existing law of the host country, or in the agreements concluded between investors and the host country. So that's the first way in which I would say uh, governance is a legal matter. The second uh, way one could say governance is a legal matter is uh, enforcement. Uh, governance principles to be enforced, for them to be enforced, there has to be a reference point what did the parties agree to or what exists in the law? So in that way, it becomes a legal matter because not all relationships remain healthy and you have a, you have a long process with many of these extractive relationships. So for all that period, there has to be a reference point and that's where governance becomes uh, a legal matter also. Yeah, that's interesting because you, you are looking at governance here uh, and, and projecting because what you're saying is these legal agreements uh, must be embedded in something and that exactly. something is the law and that exactly. law is has to be reduced in writing because it becomes yes. a reference point. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's stay with, with that for a while. We, we can't write everything, can we? Uh, no. Stephen, how then do we govern in the knowledge that even with the best will in the world, whether it's the law itself or the agreements, we can only write so much. What else then ensures that there is still governance? That is very true. We can't write everything. So when we are talking about uh, ensuring that uh, you have governance, I think we have to recognize that um, in the in the absence of governance, uh, you have different interpretations. So you then you you then need an environment, a holistic environment, where the stakeholders understand uh, the responsibilities of, of the different parties. Um, there are some uh, international norms that, uh, for instance, is the, the this, the external stakeholders, the investors have subscribed to. Uh, so that could be a, a reference point. That, that could be their own 
their own um, determining factor in terms of uh, sticking to governance principles. In the case of our own countries, uh, creating more transparent situations also ensures that you have governance. Because you are right, it's not always written. So it's really creating uh, other holistic factors like leadership uh, and, um, and, uh, and uh, institutions that then provide that governance uh, environment. Hmm. So uh, you've, you've spoken about uh, principles and you've spoken about norms. So for a lay person like me, what is the difference between norms, principles, and the law in the governance space? So really, um, you one would say that there is there is a very there is a very thin line between those norms and and the law. Quite often, the law does not necessarily cover everything. But there is an understanding, a general understanding of uh, expectation in terms of uh, what the norms should be, what the best practices should be. Um, in the absence of a robust law, the parties should really be concluding agreements that address clear governance standards uh, in order to address any gaps that may be there. The more modern agreements incorporate clear, they now call them ESG, environment, social, and governance provisions. And uh, there's general acceptance that those would really cover those norms. But that is not always the case, and that is part of the challenge that we had in Africa. Hmm. It's interesting you should raise uh, ESG as being something of an addition or a way of strengthening the law and governance. Can you be more specific? What is it do you think about uh, embedding ESGs in agreements and laws which uh, strengthens governance in your view? The, the, the reason why embedding them in agreements strengthens uh, governance is that first of all, um, you have a situation where for many, many African countries, especially the, the ones with no history of extractives, their existing laws have not adequately provided for ESG principles. In the absence of those ESG principles, an agreement that covers them is absolutely important because uh, it enables the stakeholders, other stakeholders, public, civil society, uh, government itself, to, to have a measure for expectations of the investment. And also for the investor to know uh, wh what is the measure to which he's expected to address those concerns. Uh, and so it, it, it continues with the whole issue of looking at the industry in a holistic way rather than looking at the industry in the old way, uh, in the way many countries with no history of, of uh, governance have, which is just extract the resource, get the revenue, and off you are. So, but that's not, that's not what the whole extractive industry should be, should be including uh, it should be looked at in a holistic way, and in that way, it's easier to know whether the industry uh, has an, a positive impact on, uh, on 
development of the country. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, you are making a very important point, which is that the law says that these are the parameters uh, around which you being an investor uh, can extract these resources and it lays a basis also for negotiating the actual agreements in terms of how uh, the economic benefits are shared. But what you're saying is that what ESG does is that it sets standards in terms of what people can expect. When we say you have done well, what do we mean? In the past, it, 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 the point you're making is in the past, when you had extracted paid revenue, we presume that was it. But now we have these other aspects, the environmental and the social and the governance, and now we are using them to say, not only is this the agreement, but we embed these principles and these standards, and this is what we're going to hold you uh, responsible. Now, you know what interests me about the ESG is that ESG, I think it's fair to say, is largely driven from the global north. In your view, how well received is ESG by legal uh, institutions uh, in emerging markets like Africa? How well do they embrace that as an additional, uh, if you wish, tool in their toolbox to oversee extractive uh, projects? Yeah, again, it, it also depends on the history of um, extractive industry in particular countries. The countries that have a history of a uh, long history of extractive industry understand more uh, on the importance of uh, embedding them, and they already have an experience with them. Uh, so they are, it's easier to, to adopt uh, adopt um, ESG principles into their agreements and probably also amending their laws. The more recent countries, it's a bit difficult for them to understand them uh, because there is a tendency to compete for investment, especially when you have uh, when you have a boom period. So in the in the boom period when the when the the prices of the extractive resources have gone up. Uh, there is a kind of uh, uh, competition for attracting investments. So there is a kind of reluctance to embed them in because they are more in a hurry to conclude their agreements and get on with the extraction and get revenue. So it varies from country to country, uh, but I think increasingly the global north has a leverage on many of the African countries. So. They've used that leverage, and in the process, I think many of our countries have also accepted the importance of, of uh, embedding the ESG principles in the agreements uh, because of the implications in terms of their relations with global north institutions uh, and generally investment environment. Mm. You, you spoke earlier about the presence of institutions uh, and the necessity of to have this as part of uh, being able to govern uh, the extractives. You also spoke of leaders. You've worked in the region uh, for some time now. And I wonder when you think of the law itself as uh, part of the pipeline of elements of governance, and then you think of the institutions, and then you think of leadership. And here I'm thinking of leadership broadly. 
there's corporate leadership, there's civil society leadership, and then there's political leadership. If you were to, to look at this, because we have all of these, uh, mm. but presumably, you know, the, the, some are stronger, some elements are stronger, some elements are a little weak. Where do you think is the weakest link uh, in this pipeline of uh, elements of governance? Yeah, you know, we did some surveys uh, during the time I was at LSF, uh, and we found that for many of the African countries, starting with the law is inadequate. The, the, most of them had laws concluded in the 60s, 70s, maybe 80s, and have not updated them to more modern laws. And countries that have, while for countries that have more modern laws that one would say uh, more attractive to creating uh, suitable governance, extractive governance environment. Uh, if for those countries, the challenge more is of uh, leadership of the institutions that have, have been set up. Uh, where, the, where the leadership is uh, forthright, focused, the country has clear policy and strategic uh, direction, uh, the industry tends to mature, uh, and uh, you have you have accepted standards of governance. I mean, the best example I can give is, of course, Botswana provides a good example of a country that uh, where the leadership uh, created a suitable environment for ensuring that extractive governance. And we are talking of the whole chain of of the extractive industry is up to a level that is uh, that is. Um, uh, that ensures sustainability in the extractive industry. Mm. So um, you also helped governments negotiate with mining, oil and gas uh, infrastructure projects. Uh, presumably, a, a big part of the goal was not just to ensure equitable benefit and, and good relations between government's investors, but it was also to foster governance. In what way do you think helping with negotiations adds to a robust governance environment? It makes a big difference, Sheila, assisting the countries um, uh, develop through, uh, develop a robust extractive industry uh, with, with clear governance, uh, strength, strong governance principles, by assisting them in negotiating the agreements because through the negotiation process alone, countries start realizing that they could have got much, much more from the extractive industry if they had support and learned of best practices all over the world. I could give you some examples if we had time. I mean, we assisted Niger, for instance, to renegotiate their uranium extractive um, industry agreements, which had been in place for 50 years, and they had never thought of local content. They had no infrastructure access to, their, uh, to, the, to the mines. For 50 years, through renegotiation, new agreements, they managed to obtain um, some of those aspects, benefits to the industry. Uh, including um, social aspects like uh, schools for the for the for the communities in the mining area. So, supporting these countries in negotiating makes a big difference because you have more sustainable extractive industry. The mm -hmm. industry is also dynamic. Understanding uh, 
the, the world cycles of boom and bust and how to ensure that the investors uh, invest, investors stake is also sustainable because it's not just a matter of pulling out the most you can from the investors. So, so understanding where they're coming from, they are risking their capital, understanding that and knowing that the industry will not always uh, remain the same makes a big difference. And the best way to do that is what I would term as professionally negotiated agreements. Uh, so it does make a big difference. It also makes a big difference because from my experience with the African legal support countries, the better professionally negotiated the agreements are, the more likelihood that those agreements will stand the test of time. They are not likely to be revoked when governments change. We had one big example. There's a big case still ongoing between a huge company called BSGR and Guinea, uh, who had concluded a, an agreement on uh, this famous Simandu iron ore deposit extraction uh, during a military regime period when the governance uh, standards were really low. It was uh, easy for Guinea to revoke that agreement, but if it had been negotiated professionally, it would have probably been more difficult. So it makes a huge difference to ensure governance principles are uh, uh, enshrined in the agreements if they are professionally negotiated. Mm. Yeah, of course, uh, when one says to uh, investors the, the word renegotiate, people freeze. But what so, you're saying is actually uh, there are cases when it's very important, uh, not only uh, because, to your point, the agreements cannot stand to scrutiny which then makes them essentially uh, vulnerable to change. And change is, for the sake of change, is not desired. But when there is a reason, then they should be. But I think the most important point you make is that people forget that uh, these projects last for a very long time. And what is desirable 50 years ago in terms of a country's economic infrastructure and other needs is not the same, and that we have to revisit the agreements, if only to make sure that both from an investor and a host country perspective, they speak to current reality and not something that sits in the past. I mean, I'm just shocked that uh, it could be like that in Niger, that an agreement negotiated 50 years ago would be considered uh, you know, pertinent to today's uh, environment. And uh, I think, to be fair, I think it's... Uh, there's a bit of a shortcoming there in terms of both the corporate leadership and the uh, political leadership who should want these agreements to be, uh, you know, such that they can stand the scrutiny. But I mean, we've spoken about the law and then there's people, we've spoken about leadership. What in your view then is the difference between being compliant with the law uh, versus acting ethically. Yeah, no, thank you very much. Just one clarification on the Niger example. Actually, the agreement had expired, so it had a 50-year uh, limit. It was uh, 2010, so it had expired. So sure, okay, so they were, re they, they were having to renegotiate as a function of no. the agreement itself, having come to an exactly. end. Yeah, okay. 
So in the case of the issue you have raised on the difference between being compliant with the law and uh, compliant with the law and, and acting ethically, I think we should uh, all we can all recognize that being compliant with the law does not guarantee that important ethical considerations. So ethical considerations, I think, are those values that need to be observed whether or not they are apparent to all the parties. In the in the in the judicial legal system, you know, we talk of uh, justice not only being done but also being seen to be done. So I would say that that is the kind of difference between being compliant with the law and um, and acting ethically. So ethically is is considerations or actions that don't need to be seen that really should be inherent. In, uh, in 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 what the parties are doing in the arrangement. So I think that there's a nuanced uh, uh, difference, mainly based that being compliant with the law does not really guarantee that ethical considerations are being uh, taken account of. Yeah, I guess what you're saying is that uh, first, recognizing what we said, you can't write everything and some things uh, that's where the judgment call on what the right thing is to do, and that's where ethics come in. Uh, but but I guess it's also because the law is 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 also technical. Uh, you can comply with the technical aspect of the law, but you might not comply with the moral aspect of the law. And I guess this is where ethics come in when uh, the person faced with a judgment call makes sure that regardless of whether it's written or not understanding what the norms are, what the principles are, uh, you know, of, of, of business ethics, that person would import uh, that best behavior. And with that, uh, presumably also then enhance uh, governance. But, yeah. but, but I mean, even with uh, ethics, ethos uh, vary, and some of them are, are very cultural specific. In some places, for instance, uh, the sort of things that may be considered unethical, like giving gifts, in some countries expect mm. that, and it may be considered rude not uh, mm. to to make a gift. So, in how do we accommodate uh, different cultural norms when dealing with governance, or do we say because we are dealing with governance, the the standards of governance will prevail above and beyond? Uh, the, the the cultural norms of a particular jurisdiction. How do we strike that balance? It's a very tricky balance to strike. I would say that uh, it's important for all parties to understand the, the cultures of, of uh, the opposite parties and where they are coming from. Uh, but at the same time, I would say the best thing is for all parties to have red lines that cannot be crossed irrespective of differences in cultures. So a party should be ready to walk away if a deal would lead to the crossing of uh, those red lines. On the other hand, um, from my experience, governance and ethical considerations tend to be universal. Only that uh, certain parties may use a, a cultural lens to uh, obtain uh, more than they, they, they expect. Um, more than they should be obtained. So there may be some, some selfish uh, approaches, but generally I would say that they tend to be universal, but not always, you're right. So there should be some red lines. That, that would be usually what we would recommend. 
So in the extractive space, the role of governments uh, as uh, the law of the land, but also, as you and I know, as custodians of uh, mineral oil and gas resources by law, the governments play a major uh, role in how development of extractives uh, are governed. So, so in your view, how important is political will to do the right thing, regardless of whether or not we have a, a robust law, regardless of whether or not we have the right institutions? How important is political will in the first instance? Yeah, bottom line, I think uh, everybody who has been involved in extractive sector in one way or another will accept that political will is absolutely the key factor in ensuring governance is observed. We have seen that where political will is absent, either the investment in the industry remains dormant or is very fluid. You remain with a lot of uncertainty. Most investors will be hesitant to, uh, to, to move on in terms of uh, committing their investment because the risks are huge. They're risking their capital if the political will is not there. Uh, on the other hand, the political actors kind of provide uh, rather political actors through political will kind of kind of guarantee uh, that uh, that that there is that there will be commitment to governance principles, uh, and that this applies throughout the value chain. So you are also looking at remembering that the extractive industry has always had uh, perception issues. So the availability of political will ensures that those perce negative perception issues in terms of uh, the politicians minimizes uh, minimizes the negative uh, perception. So really political will is very key. And uh, one can give different examples in Africa. And the political will has to, has to be at all stages in terms of policy development, strategic development. Recently, for instance, uh, the DRC, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, is, has been talking of ensuring that the minerals for the for the for the batteries, uh, which are going to be in huge demand, uh, are converted. Value is added to them in the DRC before they instead of being exported raw. If they can maintain a political will on that and ensure that. Um, the investors would be able to, uh, to 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 extract them and convert them. There will be and they will attract investment in the area. So without that political will, without them showing uh, the investors that they have political will to allow them to enable them invest, invest and at the same time um, safely uh, export the converted uh, minerals, you have an increased attraction in investment. Yeah, I, I like the the point you make that the fact of the leadership is the face of a country. And when there is confidence in the leadership, then there is confidence in all things sovereign because they are so, they, the expectation is that the behavior, the commitment and the, the, the values of the leadership speak to 
what you can expect. And, and I think that this is uh, what some leaders miss, that actually we start at the top and we presume that if all is well at the top, all is well at the bottom and vice versa. I think that was a really very important point. Well, I think that's a good note to end our discussion, uh, Stephen. Thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you very much, Sheila. It has been a pleasure and uh, all the best.